Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Guarin, and with every episode, I, along with the special guests, will be celebrating and rewarding our favorite films of each year starting in 1928. We will discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We'll be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. The amount of categories will also grow over time as a sort of tie-in to the Academy's evolution over time. With that all said, I would like to welcome my latest guest, Owen Daly. They previously appeared on the show for the Oscar recap episode, which was a few months ago, and they're a major film fan all around. Owen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me back uh, so quickly. Yeah. It's great to be talking with you again. So, how's your day today? How have you been? Uh, how's your day good. been? I mean, good. It's it's very warm uh, currently in uh, in Ireland, so it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I guess it's summer, so you kind of have to take the warm. But, you know, it's been a good day. That's nice to hear. And pretty much the same here. I'm, I don't know how many of you know this. I said this on uh, Twitter, but I'm starting, a few, I'm starting a new job in a few days. So I look forward to that. That's good. So today we are, oh yeah, thanks. So today we are going to be talking about the poems of 1937. And I think a good place to start would be to ask you, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible? Um, so I think the major one that wasn't eligible only because it was uh, an international film, which would later be eligible the year after, was uh, The Grand Illusion, uh, the film that would, the first um, international film to be nominated for Best Picture. Um, it obviously didn't compete this year, but was a, a released this year. Um, yeah, so that's, the I think, the film that I wish had been in contention, but I know it will be in contention the year later, so it's not too missing out. But I think that's really the only one um, that I would point out. Well, there is that. Obviously, Grand Illusion is a classic for many reasons. And possibly like one of, if not the crowning achievements of Jean Renoir's career. But I would also like to highlight another French film from this year, Pepe Limoco, directed by Julien Duvivier. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And having watched Algiers before that, which was basically the same story more or less, I think it's an interesting parallel to see how the story is done better by Duvivier and John Gavin. Algiers definitely felt like a sort of uh, Hollywood eyes sort of version of that story. So it was a cool experience getting to watch Pepe the Moco. With that said, it's time to announce our nominees starting with special effects and ending with picture. And so if you know how this goes, 
we usually start with the last category and with first we take turns announcing our nominees in each category and then repeat the process for our winners. Yeah, so the films, the five uh, that I'd spotlight for special effects of 1937 would be uh, The Good Earth, uh, The Hurricane, In Old Chicago, Lost Horizon, and Topper. And I think to kind of, obviously special effects of uh, early cinema, it, it's, it's very different than what we view as special effects nowadays, but I think all of these films have at least great have at least one great sequence where um, special effects comes into consideration. Whether it's something like The Good Earth, which, besides, I think its special effects is not my favorite of films, but I especially love the um, I can't, the sequence of the crops being destroyed, of the land being destroyed. I feel like that's really well done. And similar to something like The Hurricane in, in Old Chicago, there's a lot of destruction and special effects that are used very effectively. And then something like Topper is uses special effects in a more comedic way where you have uh, two dead characters as the leads and um, they use them for comedic effect. And then something like The Lost Horizon is using a special effects to create the grandness of its location. So I feel like there's a good, and um, between those five, there's a good different use of special effects in each of the films that makes me want to list them as the five that I would have chosen. Like I said in the previous episode, it is interesting to think of what special effects looked like back in the 1930s compared to what they are nowadays, which we mainly associate with CGI. And you can see that the Academy is has been trending towards rewarding films that use more practical effects, stuff like First Man and Tenet. So my nominees are History is Made at Night, The Hurricane, In Old Chicago, Lost Horizon, and Topper. Um, History, History is Made at Night uh, gets on the list for that final sequence alone where the ship is crashing. That's just an extraordinary sequence. And then the hurricane has the titular hurricane, which is its biggest selling point. And then in old Chicago, there's... I'm finding a lot of parallel between the first three films, at least, with a big extravagant final sequence that showcases a lot of effects work. And in old Chicago fits into that category as well. And then Lost Horizon. Basically everything was bringing Shangri-La to life and the plane crashing. And then Topper has to make the main characters invisible while also making the audience able to discern where they are. Yeah, I think I think the films that you listed are. I mean, I share uh, four out of the five with you, and then a film like History is Made at Night is 
is a film that I will mention a couple of times later on. I hadn't uh, thought about that for especially its special effects, but it's certainly a, a worthy film to be mentioned for any uh, high achievement, I think. Yeah. Such a lovely movie. We'll talk about it more later, but next up is film editing. Yeah, so uh, film editing. Um, so the five films that I would go for would be uh, The the Awful Truth, Make Way for Tomorrow, uh, The Prisoner of Zenda, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and A Star is Born. Um, so I guess just to, I feel like that's a good um, variety of films with something like a screwball comedy in the form of The Awful Truth, which is one of the best that I've at least seen from this decade. And then you have from also Liam McCurry, Make Way for Tomorrow, which is just a simple, intimate story of love between family, mainly husband and wife, and all the sadness that they have to go through. And it's just so well put together together that it's it smoothly moves by that I just had to spotlight its great editing. And then something like The Prisoner of Zenda is just this great sort of action-y piece where it moves quickly through its stun scenes and its action scenes that it's, it's it, I would say it's definitely different editing as opposed to something like Make Way for Tomorrow where the editing isn't as noticeable, where it's just very smooth. And then something like Snow White and the Seven Doors, I feel like with animated films, we need to, they deserve more considerations and categories besides the animation category or, or even as far as stretch as they go into something like music. I think it's it's definitely a film where I've watched it since I was young. So I'm very aware of every scene that happens and how well it's all stitched together that I think it deserves to be mentioned as one of the best edited films of that year. And then the original Star is Born is just, it's, it, it's kind of hard to put into words uh, how great it is because for being it's i i shamefully admit that it's the last of the stars borns that i've seen even though it was the original the originally released one but i'm glad that eventually when i did see it it stands up just as much as everyone had built it up to me to be and that's why i think it going through all the scenes it goes through from the beginning to the middle to the end it's just such a well uh completed picture that I had to spotlight it for his editing. I would say anime films definitely do deserve more recognition as not just animated films, but really great films in general that deserve recognition, like as acting achievements, directing achievements, technical achievements, and there's definitely a lot to appreciate about Snow White's editing. I have I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to just to stitch everything together and make it flow naturally. And this was their first film, Disney's first film. So coming out of the gate with this, Snow White's must have been insane 
to accomplish. So my nominees are The Awful Truth, Dead End, History is Made at Night, Make Way for Tomorrow, and A Star is Born. With The Awful Truth, it's just airtight screwball comedy magic, what they do with the editing. And Al Clark just understands what screwball comedy needs in order to succeed, which is rapid fire and yet just enough moments to breathe in between. And then there's Dead End, which has to build up a lot of tension and make you feel like you're trapped within this city where everyone seems to know each other on some level or another. And Daniel Mandel really handles that job effectively. And then History is Made at Night is basically three different genres. Romantic comedy, drama, and disaster action. And the editing plays such a crucial role in making that movie cohesive and making all its genre blending mesh into one singular film. And Margaret Clancy again handles that job really well and again makes the movie flow naturally. And then there's Make Way for Tomorrow. which is just a really well-constructed movie all around. And you feel the passage of time without it feeling long or tedious. And then A Star is Born, again, just incredibly well-constructed. Like this story that would be told so many times over and over. Just finds that sweet spot of knowing where to begin and knowing where to end. So those are my five nominees. Yeah, those are those are some great films to uh, mention. Again, we have three out of the five that we share, and then even something like Dead End, which I like that you mentioned that it feels very kind of um, very tight and very constricted and I especially enjoy it since obviously it's based on a play and I feel like the editing really emphasizes how uh, theatrical and how filmic an adaptation of a play can be and how the criticism that it feels like a play doesn't necessarily fit because just because it's a play does not mean it's not filmic. And I think you by saying that it feels tight and very central um, shows how effective plays can be for screen. And then again, History is Made at Night is, is a film that I, that I really enjoy and not finding a spot for it here was especially hard, but unfortunately there were just films that I uh, thought had better editing. Not to say that it had bad editing, but just sometimes you have to make a choice um, in the situation. But I like that you mentioned uh, the work on that film as well. Yeah, that happens. 
So next is best makeup. Yeah, so for my makeup choices, um, I go with Confession, Fire Over England, Make Way for Tomorrow, A Star is Born, and Stella Dallas. Um, so just to talk about a couple of them, um, Make Way for Tomorrow is especially a great example of makeup work where you have actors who are playing, the central characters who are playing much older than they are. And even for the time, it's not distracting old age makeup where I can believably believe that the characters are the age that they are because of how effective the makeup is. And then something like A Star is Born where makeup is ingrained into the story, even with the scene of Esther um, of the Hollywood system trying to find her look, whether it's her eyebrows, which level they are. And I enjoy that it's effective makeup that's built into the plot of the story. And then something like Fire Over England, I think the main makeup effects that were very effective for me were the creation of uh, Flora Robson's Queen of England and how um, just how singular it was than any other uh, representation of Flora Robson that I usually see on screen. She's, she's very, makeup does a lot for her to interchange her between films. I'm realizing the more I see of her where she's not, she she doesn't seem the same in any of the films because I think she takes makeup so well. And sometimes that's that's hard. I feel like that's a that's a good compliment to give to an actor because sometimes makeup can be distracting because you're so familiar with an actor's face. But that's what I like about a lot of character actors from the character actors from this time is that um their faces are recognizable, but they're not distinct, where you can put makeup on them easily and then it changes them into a completely different character. And then something like Stella Dallas' confession, uh, the two of them are very, the makeup is very focused on the central characters, especially in Stella Dallas, where we see the aging process of the titular character go from, um, she, she has the same kind of gaudy look, but it ages with how, with how she ages, and it just adds to the Stella character in, the most effective ways and then to talk about confessions definitely I would say the least known of the films that I center on its makeup but I think if you watch the film and see what they do to Kay Francis's character and how completely different she is in something like in some, then in something like Trouble, Trouble in Paradise you'll just see how effective the makeup is to hide her very recognizable star face so I think that's why each of those films would have been deserving of a makeup nomination had the category exists um, 50 years before it was introduced. Yeah, I definitely agree with all those nominees. So my nominees are Camille, Fire Over England, The Life of Emile Zola, Make Way for Tomorrow, and A Star is Born. I think with Camille, it's just really effective period makeup, the hair, and making it appear period accurate. And then there's, and then there's Fire Over England with its creation of 
Flora Robson into the Queen of England, and then The Life of Emile Zola, which is not a great movie, but I do think that the makeup was very good. And then Make Way for Tomorrow. Um makes the central actors Vale Bondi and Victor Moore appear even older than they are and it's convincing and it fits the story. And then a Star's Born, like you said, just the makeup is integrated into the story with the Hollywood system and everything going on. Yeah, no, those are definitely uh, some good choices to make. Um, I I agree with you. Emile Zola isn't my most favorite of movies, and I think maybe that dislike that I have for it maybe kept me away from wanting to mention it as any best of anything. But I I can I guess I can admit that there is makeup used. Um, it's it's effective, but I think I try to stay away from it because I just didn't want to <laughs> mention it for any great things. And then, as you say, Camille's very effective period makeup, which sometimes I feel gets overlooked simply because it's not true prosthetic use where it's great hair and great makeup. So I'm glad that you found room to mention it because sometimes I feel like it can be underrated in just simple period makeup as opposed to something like large prosthetic makeup. Yeah. I do think period pieces can sometimes be taken for granted beyond just the set designs and costumes. Like, when it comes to, you know, stuff like makeup, it has to be period accurate and especially with the hair, that has to be accurate. And just little subtle details like that can really make or break a movie. So next is best original score. Yes, so when it comes to film's original scores, I sometimes uh, I struggle sometimes to put into words why I find a score so effective simply because sometimes I think when it comes to film score I enjoy more invisible scoring where it's effective but I'm not noticing how say bombastic it is or how loud it is so in saying that I think uh, the five scores that I would nominate would be the score uh, for the film Angel, History is Made at Night, Nothing Sacred, The Prisoner of Zenda, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really have, as I said, I can't, it's kind of hard for me to put into words to describe scores, but I think in talking collectively about these uh, scores, they just add to the sequences of the film, whether it be an action sequence in Zenda or um, just the great romantic scores to a film like History is Made at Night. 
and then Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which is a film I'm familiar with from my youth. So it's a score that I'm uh, very familiar with, but I think all five of these films have, are very, very effective scoring. So that's why I chose them all. Yeah, it can be hard for me too to describe exactly why I like the score. Partly because I don't exactly know the terminology to describe like specific scores, but also I just find that I can become rather redundant in describing a score. Like there are only so many times I can say the same thing about multiple scores, which I tend to do. Nonetheless, my nominees are Captain's Courageous, Lost Horizon, The Prisoner of Zenda, A Star is Born, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I think with Snow White and the Seven and the Seven Dwarves, I think it synchronizes with the songs so well, and it fits the mood in every scene of the movie. Whether it's the darker scenes of spoilers, the or evil queen meeting her demise, like that is a great usage of scoring. And then the prisoner of Zenda, I think, is one of Alfred Newman's best that I've heard from him. Like it is just a perfect swashbuckling score. And he did his fair share of those, like for stuff like the Mark of Zorro and the Black Swan. So, he understood that genre. And then, with Lost Horizon, it's just a great adventure score from Dmitry Tiopkin. Same with Captain's Courageous. And then, A Star is Born really fits well into the sort of melodrama scores that Max Steiner would compose. And it's a great example of, like, a more subtle score that doesn't exactly draw attention to itself, but complements the movie so well. You know, those are uh, great picks as well. Um, Lost Horizon was definitely a score that I um, considered uh, listing. Um, and then I, I don't have any really fond memories for the Captain Courageous score, but I think that's maybe again my feelings towards the overall film affecting um, my opinion of many of its elements but i'm sure if i were to if i were to ever um return and re-watch the film i would definitely try pay attention to its score yeah i ended up liking captain's courageous perhaps a bit more than i expected Maybe it's just because being me and having my personal preferences that just appeal to me more than I initially expected. So next is best sound recording. Yeah, so uh, kind of similar to score and <laughs> talking about good sound work is also slightly difficult to put into words, but 
And I think, and especially how sound has changed over time, whether we're talking about something like editing and mixing, or as this category's title suggests, sound recording. And I think I just went for the films that I thought had great sound. They were great sounding. They had, they um, had great mixes of sound or just they had standout moments where a lot of sound was used. So the five that I went for would be A Day at the Races, Dead End, In Old Chicago, The Prisoner of Zenda, and Stage Door. Uh, so similar to how I've been describing Zenda so far, it's, as you said, a great swashbuckling film where there's loads of action, lots of sword fights, lots of jumping around. So there's a lot of action and there's also dialogue happening during a lot of these action scenes. So to comfortably follow what's happening in the plot while, while these big action scenes are happening, I feel is a great uh, use of sound where I can still follow along. And then something like In Old Chicago is, it's mainly for the final uh, Chicago fire scenes where the sound really ramps up. And I think even though it's not my most favorite movies, I can't help but I have to praise if I find the element of the film really effective. And then say something like Dead End and Stage Door, which are adaptations of plays. Sound work for plays, I feel, can get a bit underrated simply because it's mainly one location uh, shoots. But I think both have good elements of use of sound, whether it's Stage Door and um, its sequences in creating these vast spaces for the stage performance scenes or even the untimely um, exit of one character scene, I find the use of sound effects in that quite effective. And that's why I listed here. And then say something in Dead End where you even mentioned yourself in, the ed in your editing choice of it, that it's very together and very kind of small. And I feel like when sounds happen, they explode more simply because it's a very tense uh, piece and then just to round it out a day at the races is just a great um, Marx Brothers movie for me it's very funny there's a lot of scenes a lot of different situations and uh, whether it's I mean as the title suggests there's a day at the races there's also a few dancing numbers and um, but I think there's a lot of great sound work in that as well definitely I can see, I can see the merits in all your choices, especially with the specific elements with each of them. So my nominees are Captain's Courageous, Dead End, Lost Horizon, The Prisoner of Zenda, and Stage Door. I think stage door sound work is most effective when the characters are performing or bouncing off one another, just talking to one another, just talking over each other. Like the dialogue of our lap is really well utilized. And like you said, the various use of sound effects going on. It's just really good sound work. And then the Prisoner of Zenda, as we discussed, just great swashbuckling, just clinking of swords, dialogue during the action scenes, 
and the sword fight scenes. It's just really well put together in every aspect. And then Lost Horizon. I really like the harshness of the howling snow during the snow scenes. And then Dead End. Aside from hearing various gunshots, it does a good job at further selling how this community can feel spacious and yet claustrophobic and almost too tightly knit. And then Captain's Courageous really captures being out at sea and on this ship and all the troubles that that would ensue. Yeah, no, again, um, similar to what I meant there, when mentioned earlier, uh, Captain Courageous and Lost Horizon might just be affected by um, my overall feelings towards them, but I can agree that uh, Courageous does have some good sound work, especially early on when, um, I think, is the actor's name John Bartholomew? Um, who plays Freddie, Bar Freddie Bartholomew. Freddie Bartholomew, yes, um, a very um, annoying child actor, to say the least, um, especially when his character at the beginning goes overboard and finds himself on the ship. Um, I think there's some good sound work there, and it's very believably, it's very believable to me that they are at sea, even though obviously at the time they were filming, they were most likely on a soundstage um, in built sets of a boat, but I think there's some good sound work there. And then Lost Horizon, um, I, I, if I can remember, I would I would agree that there is some good sound work there, but they just didn't make the list for me simply because I think the films um, that I would have put over them, that I did put over them, I just enjoy a bit more as films. So when I enjoy a film a bit more, I tend to consider it a bit higher rather than a film that I'm a bit more mixed on, but they are they are good films to mention in terms of their sound recording, I think, as well. Certainly. So, next is best costume design. Yes, uh, costume design. Again, another category which, unfortunately, would take another 12 years until um, it would be introduced, which is the oddest thing for me because I don't understand why it wasn't awarded from the beginning because you can't, obviously there's a lot of elements you need to make a film, but costumes are, for me at least, an element that I always look out for a lot. Um, so in saying that, the five films that I uh, would spotlight as the best of the year would be Angel, Camille, Confession, Fire Over England, and Stella Dallas. Um, so unfortunately, with my choices, it's a lot of period pieces, um, which sometimes I find there's a bit of an expectation that period costuming is the only choice to make in this category, which I don't necessarily agree with, but with these films, at least, I think they're very good examples of great costuming, whether it's 
the great costuming that are done on the women and even men of the British uh, monarchies um, or something in Camille where there's very extravagant costuming for the French period. Um, and then the costumes in Stella Dial's confession are very similar to the makeup that I mentioned earlier, very related to telling the story of the characters. So say in Stella Dallas, the costuming is especially called out even in the film when Stella's daughter is older and is with a group of friends and her mother, unbeknownst to her, arrives and her um, appearance is found humorous by these set of young people. So I think that effect, effective costuming there helps to kind of give the idea that it's believable that these people would call out her for her um, makeshift fancy costuming. So that's why I would call it out as great costuming. And so, and oh, sorry, an angel. Um, I just think that's, it, it's very hard for me not to choose costuming that's worn by Marlena Dietrich, especially during this period where she just so effectively wears costuming, whether it's gowns or suits, or even just simply um, underwear pieces, as in something like uh, the Blue Angel. She just has this presence where she can carry off any costume and no one could tell her anything. So that's why that film would join the other four as um, my choices for costuming of 1937. I definitely agree with all those choices. So, my nominees are Angel, Camille, Fire Over England, The Life of Emile Zola, and The Prisoner of Zenda. I think with The Prisoner of Zenda, well, first off, it is hard for me to describe specific elements of costumes. Because for as much as I enjoy looking at, like, all the technical aspects of a film, I'm not sure how good I am at describing them, per se, but I guess I'll try my best. I think with Prisoner of Zenda, there is... It makes good use of its historical setting, and I feel it has a bit of fun with the costumes and how they look. And then there's The Life of Emile Zola, which at least has some pretty good-looking, period-accurate historical costumes. It is at least decent on a technical level. And then there's Fire Over England, which again, just has some really great period gowns and looks historically accurate. And then Camille. Actually, the costumes are great there. Like, the costumes look gorgeous. This is Adrian again, and he really knew what to do in any given situation. And then there's Angel. Or fashion was definitely a large part of Marlene's identity. Like, the different clothes she wore to express a certain part of her persona 
they certainly stand out in popular culture for a very good reason. And Angel is once again a good example of it. And it's an Ursula Bitch movie. So costumes are are obviously going to be great in any Blue Witch movie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, the pop culture references that are constantly made from Merlina Dietrich is example enough why her costuming so iconic. But even in saying that, I feel like Angel is especially an underrated film in her filmography. But I think if people get the opportunity to check it out, as you say, they're getting an Ernst Lubitsch film as well, which I would never say no to because the majority of the stuff that I see from him is worthy of consideration. And this just happens to be just another one of those. And um, yeah, I think Zola and Zenda um, I'd considered, um, but I think in terms of my film tastes, I tend to go with uh, female-led pictures in kind of any situation and um, the choice of Confession and Stella Dallas for me were of higher um, consideration for me simply because I kind of wanted to spotlight those films as well because I feel like uh, they can be overlooked for elements besides the central performances of the women in them. Yeah, I... I agree with those points, and I I honestly don't know why I didn't nominate Stella Dallas, because it was so close for me. Like, the costumes are just excellent. And really help to accentuate the lead character's persona and personality. But yeah, all good choices. So... Next is Best Art Direction. Yeah, so uh, kind of similar to costume design. Um, I think I share, I think two, well, there's two crossovers with uh, costume and art direction. Um, so I've nominated Angel, Camille, Dead End, Nothing Sacred, and The Prisoner of Zenda. Uh, so kind of similar to what I would have said about the costuming about Angel and Camille. They're just great sets that the people get to walk around in their luxurious costumes. And so that's why I would have chosen those two. And then something like Dead End, which it's mainly set on in this one block, but there's so much to the block. There's so many levels, whether it's floors of the building or different sections of the main part of the block. It's just such detailed work that can get overlooked I think because people might dismiss the film as merely a a filmed play but if you actually see the film there's definitely much more to appreciate than the piece itself and then uh, spotlighting something like Nothing Sacred it's a film that I'd only heard the name before checking it out and I was so happy to really enjoy it it's the I think it's the I think it's it's the rare uh, technicolor picture from Carol Lombard, and um, it has a lot of great set pieces, um, to walk around in whether it's the uh, piers or the great news organizations, um, it's just a very big picture, 
And I think there's a lot of great art direction there that if you ever have the chance to check it out, it's definitely worth watching. And then to round it out, the Prisoner of Zenda, it's just great sets for the action to happen about. And it's it's just great to behold. So I think those are the reasonings why I would have gone with those five for art direction. Absolutely. They're all like really well-designed movies in their own respective ways. And Nothing Sacred was actually, I think the only Technicolor movie that Carol Lombard made. And I think it does a good job in highlighting her natural beauty and just looking really beautiful all around. Like the whole hotel, I like the look of that. So my nominees are Angel, Camille, Dead End, Lost Horizon, and The Prisoner of Zenda. With Angel, like, it's Ernst Lubitsch, like I said, so it's going to look gorgeous. All the little specific details like in the settings and even just the furniture it just looks so lush and then with Camille it just looks like an extravagant time in this period piece and I really like the look of the palace and the ballroom and then dead ends which to me never even felt like a film to play I felt like I was watching just a pure cinematic experience. I loved how this city felt big and yet claustrophobic, almost anxiety-inducing on some level. And then Lost Horizon brings Shangri-La to life. Like, Shangri-La looks like this place you almost want to be in, but not exactly. And then the Prisoner of Zenda. It's glorious. It just looks glorious in terms of the art direction, especially the castle. It looks both gothic and romantic. And then going back to Dead End, I think attention to detail is the key here in terms of what makes it work so well. Like, it's sturdy and grimy. Even the places where the affluent and the rich are living, they don't seem all that appealing. Yeah, I, I, am, um, I agree with what you've just said about Dead End, and that's why I think it's very effective um, art direction. And then something like Lost Horizon, um, which is, is the difference between us two in terms of our choices. I think that's the, there's some great direction, uh, art direction there in that you do get the extravagance of the central location of the action. 
because of the details that have been put in. So I think it's definitely it's definitely worthy of um, consideration for art direction. Definitely. So next is best cinematography. Yeah, so for cinematography, um, the five films that I've chosen are um, Angel, Nothing Sacred, A Star is Born, uh, Stella Dallas, and then Stage Door. Uh, so similar to the comments about its art direction costume design, I think Angel is just a great film to behold. Um, it's some, there's some beautiful black and white cinematography that really spotlights the other design elements of the film. And then Nothing Sacred is just a great early example of great technicolor photography. And as you said, it really showcases the natural beauty of Carol Lombard in her single uh, technicolor film. And then something like A Star Is Born is also a great use of technicolor photography where it really showcases how dreamlike um, Hollywood was at the time and somehow sort of continues to be. And I think it's a great example of photography really influencing people's opinions on a location. And then to talk about Stage Door and Stella Dallas, which are the other two black and white films that I want to spotlight for cinematography, Stage Door has a lot of, a large ensemble constantly featured in every frame, which is something that I miss today. But I think that it, by spotlighting all of these different characters and managing to get us to follow them quite easily through the photography is some rather impressive work. And then Stella Dallas is, is just a great story told well. And I think the photography whether it's the shot creations, the scenes are so well done. I think especially the photography for the final scene is photography that I'd expect of a film made now where it really is ahead of its time with a close-up on an actor just emoting, seriously emoting and really affecting you. And that's why I wanted to pick it as one of the best cinematographies of the year. Definitely with all that. So my nominees are Captain's Courageous, Dead End, History is Made at Night, A Star is Born, and You Only Live Once. So with Captain's Courageous, I think you really get a sense of the scope and the vast oceans and the ship that this crew is on, as well as the realization that despite the cool adventure that this might seem like, it's really kind of hell, and being out in the sea is harder than people might realize.
And then there's Dead End, which is Greg Toland. It's more masterwork from a master, like deep focus, expansive angles, expressive shadows, just the lighting, just just the wide shots and the glances up in the sky. It's terrifying at points. And then History is Made at Night. Greg Tolan did some uncredited work there, but the uh, person who was credited is um, David Abel, who his cinematography makes Jean Arthur look luminous, makes her look uh, just lovely with Charles Boyer when they're together, which is a lot. And the nights look foggy and airy, and the various lights at night always have this sort of uh, diner at nighttime quality, I would describe them as. And then that final scene where the ship is crashing, that also looks great. And then A Star is Born is just such a great use of color this early in the film industry. Just W. Howard Green was a pioneer in this regard and many others. And it just looks stunning and makes you want to be in Hollywood, despite even if you know some of the seedier aspects of that place. And then You Only Live Once. A large part of this movie's appeal as, a, as, a, as an early noir classic is the cinematography. Even this early in his career, Leon Shamroy shows such a control of mood and striking imagery. Just like the striped lighting with the prison bars. That is such a striking piece of imagery. Yeah, there's uh, some great choices you've made there as well. Um, as I said earlier, history is made, at is made at night is definitely a film that I, I am going to mention. Uh, I just haven't had the opportunity to yet. And then um, Dead End is, is, an, is a good choice to make because I feel like it could be underrated simply because it's um, it's it's set in very small locations and then history is made at night is a very um big film in the locations that it uses and how effective it shoots them and then a star is born um is just is just a great film about dreamers and i feel like the photography especially makes an example of that in how it chooses to create its hollywood scenes and how by creating them in this dreamlike sense that towards the end of the film where the dreams start to break and reality starts to set in, that it also effectively shows how unstable these dreams are through its photography, that even when hor hor horrific things are happening, it's well shot and it's also telling um, the story effectively as well.
Absolutely. So next is best original song. And yeah, so the so the five films that I would or the five songs that I want uh, that I nominate would be "Whispers in the Dark" from Artists and Models, "Who Wants Love" from Bride Wore Red, "They Can't Take That Away from Me" from Shall We Dance, "Someday My Prince Will Come" from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and then "Whistle While You Work" also from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, all great songs. Um especially the Snow White songs. As I mentioned earlier, it's a film. It's definitely of the films. It's the one that I'd seen first, um, which isn't that shocking because it's a very good staple picture of youth. And the Someday My Prince Will Come and Whistle While You Work songs are still all these years later stuck in my head where even the suggestion of the title will send my mind into wanting to sing the whole song. And then uh, They Can't Take That Away From Me is just another great song from a Ginger and Rogers feature that um, has both the dance sequence, but also the song itself, where it makes it such a special moment in the film. And then the other two songs are just great examples of music from the 30s that even if the films aren't the greatest of achievements, that highlighting the songs are worth um, remembering. Definitely. So my nominees are Let's Call the Whole Thing Off from Shall We Dance. They Can't Take That Away From Me from Shall We Dance. Mr. and Mrs. Dokes from Marked Woman. Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and Whistle While You Work from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So, Marked Woman is a Betty Davis, Humphrey Bogart movie that may or may not be remembered today, but it did have a lot of charms to it, I'd say, and I think all the songs that were featured in the film were pretty good, and Mr. and Mrs. Dose is probably my favorite from the soundtrack. And then, of course, there's the two songs from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which are iconic. And then the two songs from Shall We Dance. They are just a lot of fun, as you would expect from George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin and a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musical. Yeah, um, similar to myself, I go with the Snow White and the Shall We Dance numbers. Um, there's just, it's, I, every year that someone wants to discredit the original song category, I always go back to years past and say, if it didn't exist, this um, song wouldn't have won the award. And while not every film has original an original song, I think it's always worth recognizing because it music is an international language where we can all relate to music. And 
with songs being so integral to certain movies, I think it's definitely still worth recognizing all these years later. And just thinking that this was the third year or maybe third or fourth year that the category had been introduced. And I'm glad that it stuck around, unlike some categories from the time which haven't stood the test of time. Absolutely. I especially like when songs are actually integral to a film, but I just enjoy, uh, I just appreciate enjoying music in general. So next is Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, yes, yeah, so the five films uh, that I'd spotlight as great adaptations would be The Awful Truth, Make Way for Tomorrow, Snow White and the Seven Doors, Stage Door, and True Confession. Um, so just to say up front, I've, I've not read any of the texts that these think that these films are adapted from, but spotlighting their great uh, writing is why I feel they've made their space worthy. And so something like The Awful Truth is such a great screwball comedy where lines stick out to you and are very comedic. So I think that the screenwriting of that is worthy of its space here. And then something like Make Way for Tomorrow um, is, as I said earlier, a very sad picture. And while a lot of stories being told, it's very to the point and very tight where even over a long period of time, it's telling a story very effectively. And then something like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs again, animation deserves recognition outside of the one category. So telling the story of Snow White, even if slightly in a slightly abridged version, a slightly Disney friendly version, it's still a great work that should be awarded. Um, and Stage Door, while I understand that it's it's been called out as being loosely based on the original text, I still have to go with it in the adapted category simply because there was an original piece that it was taking inspiration from. And then the final film is True Confession is definitely the least known of these five. It's um, another great Carol Lombard film. If anyone ever checks it out, it really highlights why she was such a great comedian of the time and why when she passed, it was such a great loss because there was so much that she was um, well able to do, but just time, we lost her so young and so quickly. But I think True Confession is a great example of her comedic work well captured in collaboration with someone like Frederick March, or sorry, Fred McMurray, who um, was her co-star of the film. So I think if anyone ever has the opportunity to check out that, you should really check it out because her filmography is very limited, but every film that she made, especially during this period, is well worth its watch. I definitely agree. I shamefully did not see True Confession before this episode, but 
I definitely want to check it out and watch it, if only for Carol. So, my five nominees are The Awful Truth, Captain's Courageous, Make Way for Tomorrow, Stage Door, and Stella Dallas. With Stage Door, this is one where I definitely consider putting an original because it has almost nothing to do with the original play, but at the same time, I feel like going by your like through line, it does at least take inspiration from the original play. So I'll give you a pass on that front. I think the awful truth, Captain's Courageous, Make Way for Tomorrow, Sell Dallas, even Stage Door, they're all just great representations of greatly adapting pre-existing mediums. And they're all just extremely well written. Yeah, um, I can't argue with your choices made there, and maybe slightly Captain's courageous. Um, I don't, I don't obviously, I don't hate the film. I just am slightly mixed on it. But I think that also could be my hesitancy towards many of Tracy's movies he's um he is one of the figures of this period where I as a contemporary viewer just don't get it but I understand that he was very popular at the time yeah Spencer Tracy is one of those actors who I can't say I dislike him as an actor, but I guess I am kind of mixed on him, mainly when he's playing like these morally upstanding characters. I really wonder like why they settled on that for typecasting him, or he seemed like he would have been a better fit for playing more morally ambiguous characters, like like the character he plays in Fury. But I do think that he is likable here. And yeah, I'll get more to his performance later when we get into the acting categories. So next is best play. Yeah, so for um, original screenplay, the five that I would go with would be A Day at the Races, Easy Living, History is Made at Night, The Star is Born, and Nothing Sacred. And so to talk about the films, this finally, finally I get to mention History is Made at Night and how it's one of the great romantic films that I've seen, at least from this period, where it really just gets to me how effective simplicity can be when telling a romantic story through gestures, through looks. And I think 
through the words, especially of the film. It's just really great filmmaking. And then A Star is Born, there's a, there's a, there's a reason why the story has been told, has been remade three times since. It's just a really good story. And especially this first go around, it's so fresh. And while it may not, it may not be the most historically accurate representation of Hollywood at any period, it's still great filmmaking and its screenplay just needs to be highlighted every time. And then Easy Living is just on the other spectrum from something like History is Made at Night shows Jean Arthur at her great comedian powers. And A Day at the Races is probably the last great Marx Brother movie for me. Um, and it's it's there's just so many great comedic sequences that are written that people should really check it out. And especially should check out all the Marx Brothers movies because there's a lot of great com uh, comedy to them. And then Nothing Sacred, as I mentioned earlier, is just a great Lombard uh, comedic picture as well, where she just shines so much. And there's a lot of good writing there where she can make it so effective because of a lot of great writing available to her. I absolutely agree with all those choices. I think A Day at the Races is perhaps a bit less funny for me than previous Marx Brothers movies, but I can definitely see its charms. So, my nominees are Easy Living, History is Made at Night, Nothing Sacred, A Star is Born, and You Only Live Once. I think with Easy Living, it's just a great screwball comedy by Gene Arthur, who is a goddess, especially in the comedy genre, but really within any genre that she's in. And then Mitchell Leeson, who was a really underrated director in this era. And then Preston Sturge's script. And he just knows how to write crackling dialogue and <laughs> achingly funny scenarios for a lot of comedic hijinks to ensue. And then history is made at night. It, the script is so nutty and benefits from going all the way and its shifts and ideas and all the little turns it takes, like going through various genres and subgenres. And then Nothing Sacred is... It's been hecked and his script is just achingly funny throughout, like he knows how to write witty dialogue. And then A Star is Born, like you said, it's easy to see why this property has been remade so many times. Like, it is such a enduring concept to play around with and mold into different periods of time. And then 
You Only Live Once. There was something to this movie and its structure in the scripts. You can see how it would influence future movies like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and I think it's an incredibly effective story of running away from the law. And you can see why this is held up as an early staple of the noir genre. Yeah, those are some uh, great choices for original screenplay uh, to make. Yeah, so next is Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, so for Supporting Actress, a category which second to Leading Actress is my favorite category simply because of all the endless possibilities available to mention but for this year i have to go with faye bainter for make way for tomorrow laura hope cruz for camille lucille laverne for snow white and the seven dwarfs may robson for a star is born and dame may witty for night must fall now with all of these five uh, uh, none are similar in any way. Uh, you have Faye Bainter, who easily was one of the most expressive actors of the time. And while a majority of her work is in supporting roles, she makes you want to watch her and focus on her even with limited screen time. And Make Way for Tomorrow is no exception for me. She makes her Anita character who initially can come off as cold, so warm due to her expressive nature, but also her attention to character in making her a fully rounded person. And then moving on to Laura Hope Cruz is just a great addition to the Camille cast. She obviously isn't the star like Garbo, but her presence is just one of the great character actor examples of the time where every time she's on screen you just want to follow her because she's bringing such a different energy to the film and somehow she managed to steal the picture I feel from a garbo which would seem impossible at the time but in watching in retrospect she really is a standout for me and then Lucille Laverne um, is one of the rare um, voiceover performances that I would spotlight as being the best of the year. She plays both the queen and the witch, and I just have such clear memories of her voice work that I have to highlight her um, in this list. And then Mae Robson is a very minor role of A Star Is Born, but she really bookends the film with her moments opposite um, Janet Gaynor's character, where she really makes her impression known, even with such limited screen time. She really breaks your heart early on and then comes later on in the film to really be the heart and guide Esther, due to, uh, guide Esther to her end conclusion. And then finally rounding it out is the only, the only one of this list that ended up with an Academy Award nomination is Dame Mae Whitty. And May Whitty is just one of those examples of an actor who at, I feel at any time in, in history would be the same 
level of fame that she was. She's just one of those great types that cinema has in its past. And even though this was her first um, film role, it's as if she'd been working in film for years before. Um, I especially love her final scene where she's for once showing the fear that she's going to die. And it's just so effectively delivered that it's no wonder for me that she received a very deserved Oscar nomination for her debut. Absolutely, those are all excellent choices. So my nominees are Flora Robson for Fire Over England, Faye Bainter for Make Way for Tomorrow, May Woody for Night Must Fall, Andrea Lees for Stage Door, and Anne Shirley for Stella Dallas. I think with Anne Shirley, there is such a great fleshing out of the daughter character, like making her fully rounded and fairly realistic. Even in a movie as melodramatic as this, And you understand her, even when she's doing things that you don't exactly approve of. And and Shirley just has this great repertoire with Barbara Stanwyck that makes the relationship believable. And then there's Andrea Leeds, who quietly see, steals scenes and is just tragic all the way. And in many ways, is almost the heart and soul of this movie stage door and then may witty i feel like she is has more than just an acidic cantankerous elderly woman character of her sleeve she's almost childish in some of her attitudes like pretending to need a wheelchair and bossing around her maid and threatening to fire her and Maywoody is able to channel so many of her characteristics with just glances and expressions and shifting around in her wheelchair. And the way she communicates with Robert Montgomery's character is just really captivating. So, and then there's Faye Bainter, who was one of the great character actresses of her generation. And she makes you understand the Anita character. Again, even when you don't agree with her, you at least understand her plight and where her position comes from. And then there's Flora Robson, who was just delightful Queen of England. I just enjoyed watching her throughout the movie. Yeah, th those are some great choices to make as well. I think when it comes to a film like Stage Door, which is a film I love, I find it hard to spotlight just one actress because there's just so many who are doing such good work that you could almost fill up this category twice and still have choices to make. 
So I think in terms of making a decision, I chose to not spotlight any simply because it was very difficult for me to choose one that I preferred over the other. And then I agree, and surely you wouldn't have um, Stella Dallas be as great as, as it is without Anne Shirley's work. And I feel like she definitely gets the shaft when it comes to people discussing Stella Dallas, but it re she really shouldn't because you, you couldn't have any of its effectiveness without both the mother and the daughter actors being just as great as one another. Absolutely. So next is Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, so for Supporting Actor, um, the five I'd go would be Edward Arnold for Easy Living, Ralph Bellamy for The Awful Truth, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. for The Prisoner of Zenda, Harpo Marx for A Day of the Races, and Thomas Mitchell for Make Way for Tomorrow. And just in speaking of them, um, Edward Arnold, Ralph Bellamy, and Harpo Marx are just great examples of supporting men in comedies. I think, especially during the 30s, there were so many great examples of supporting men in comedies that were just overlooked, whether it was because of comedy bias or just their performances just weren't seen as great as dramatic supporting men would be. And then Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is just so much fun in The Prisoners and he's just having a great time playing this wicked character that um, I couldn't help but want to nominate him for this category. And then rounding it out, you have Thomas Mitchell, who was a great character actor at the time who could play anything. And um, his role, he was nominated this year, but for the hurricane, and I can comfortably say his work in the hurricane is so different from his work in Make Way for Tomorrow. But for me, I think I enjoy his work in Make Way for Tomorrow much more simply because there's so much seen and unseen about that character. And I feel like he really sells his place in the movie effectively that it had to be the film that I spotlighted him for when it came to his work in 1937. I definitely agree. So with all of that, I agree. So my nominees are Ralph Bellamy for The Awful Truth, Spencer Tracy for Captain's Courageous, Humphrey Bogart for Dead End, Thomas Mitchell for Make Way for Tomorrow, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. for The Prisoner of Zenda. So with Ralph Bellamy, like you said, he's just a great supporting character in a comedy. Like, he's just a great ingredient in this almost perfect movie. Being in between Cary Grant and Irene Dunn's fights, he just understands the character. 
And then with Spencer Tracy, he's just a lot of fun and likable. And he has great chemistry with Freddie Bartholomew. And he's not entirely convincing as a Portuguese fisherman, but he just has this great appreciation of life and this sweetness that I found it hard not to smile. And he actually won the lead actor, but I consider him more of a supporting character. I feel like it's more the child actor story than anyone else's. And then there's Humphrey Bogart for Dead End. And I find Bogart's early career so fascinating. Aside from like the odd role where he'd be cast as the good guy to Betty Davis in Mark Twoman and then Black Legion, which he's also pretty good in. He mostly played villainous supporting characters, and Dead End was one of them, and a rare movie that he did not make for Warner Bros. He made this for United Artists. And he does a good job conveying Babyface Martin's sense of identity crisis and the struggle to keep a low profile in his childhood neighborhood. And then there's Thomas Mitchell, who he was nominated for the Hurricane, but he's much better in Make Way for Tomorrow, or he almost feels kind of clumsy in terms of how he acts, but like all the other characters, he's just so well-defined that it's hard not to recognize him. And then there's Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who is just such a fun villain and projects a menace that feels beyond his years. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it's very interesting um, to spotlight Tracy and Bogart in the supporting category, especially with what their careers would go on to be into these very well-known leading men of the next three decades, two decades at least uh, for Bogart, um, that it's um, very interesting for, to see where their beginnings began but i agree with what you said about the other three as well which is why they also made my list a supporting actor i did consider edward arnold for easy living i will say that he it's just one of those he was one of those just dependable character actors and i think he was also good in a leading role in the devil Daniel Webster. So yeah. So next is Best Actress. Uh, best Actress, the category which I found the hardest time narrowing down. There's so many wonderful leading performances from women this year, which is why cutting certain ones was so difficult to do but the five that I think delivered the best from the year were Jean Arthur in History, um, Is Made at Night, 
Balula Bondi for Make Way for Tomorrow, Kay Francis for Confession, Carol Lombard for Nothing Sacred, and Barbara Stanwyck for Stella Dallas. Uh, Jean Arthur is just simply one of cinema's greatest performers who doesn't get discussed enough nowadays, I feel, um, especially by modern audiences, unless you really do your research into classic film, you're missing so much. She was just such a gifted actress, whether it was in her more comedic turns or even in a film like History is Made at Night, where she's such a convincing romantic lead opposite Boyer. The two of them together is just so uh, beautiful to watch. It's just so believably delivered by both. And I feel this is definitely an underrated turn by Jean Arthur. And also prop um, extra points are given to her for her work in Easy Living as well, which is on the opposite side, just a great example of how gifted she was in any genre. Um, and next, next I would go with Balula Bondi, who was such a definitive supporting character actress at the time that her work in Make Way for Tomorrow is such a rare leading turn that nowadays we do see a lot of character actresses get that one opportunity opportunity to play a very interesting leading role but Bondi's work in Make Way for Tomorrow is so rare but also so excellent she's she breaks your heart with the smallest of facial gestures it's it's no wonder why she was such a effective character actress because she can easily slip into any emotion and really sell you on it. I especially found a lot of great humorous notes from her performance in how awkward she could be sometimes. And I really enjoyed the juxtaposition of these humorous moments as opposed to the ending of the film where we see her character finally separated from her husband due to unfortunate circumstances of age and caring she just delivers that moment as effective as she does any other moment throughout the film. Um, Kay Francis was such a, at least before the year that followed, was such a famous actress at the time. Also, like Arthur, is very not as much discussed today, but her work in Confession is definitely a diversion from what she was most known for. I mean, she's playing a blonde character which is just not at all familiar with the usual Kay Francis look but if people do get the opportunity to watch Confession which I really hope they do you'll really get to see her stretch herself and be just as effective as Vera as she was in anything else that she did Um, Carol Lombard in Nothing Sacred N no one's better than Lombard when it comes to screw ball comedies I it's just She's just unmatched in any of the roles. And this is just happens to be the best of the films that she made in 1937. And I would feel wrong not spotlighting Carol Lombard at this time in her career. And then rounding out the group is Barbara Stanwyck and Stella Dallas, which is the, the one, again, the one Oscar nominee that I would keep in the category. She just, she breaks your heart very early on 
in how hard she tries to make her daughter's life much better. And it just shows Barbara Stanwyck's ability to play any character. I mean, this is the actress who, who four years later would go on to play the Lady Eve and how an actress could play both Stella, Stella Dallas and um, the Lady Eve in one career is beyond me. There's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's really hard to talk about without getting emotional what Stan Wick's work Estelle Dallas does for me. It's just seeing her, um, seeing her just show such real emotions, such contemporary emotions in a time where histrionic acting was so popular at the time. It's no wonder that Stanwyck of these women has had the name which has lasted the longest. Her work is just so of any time and Stella Dallas just happens to be one of her best outings ever. And that's why all five of those women made my list. And again, there are just so many more that I could have nominated, but it was just so difficult to nail down. And I'm sure I will hear others suggest other women that I would find as equally as deserving. Yeah, 1937 was a great year for women, like, in leading roles. Like, there were so many. Like, I could name just a few, like, the two leading ladies from Stage Door, and I'm sure I'm missing some others that I'm thinking of, but there were a lot. So my nominees are... Irene Dunn in The Awful Truth, Jean Arthur in History's Made at Night, Viola Bondi in Make Way for Tomorrow, Janet Gaynor in A Star is Born, and Barbara Stanwyck in Stella Dallas. With Irene Dunn, she is just so eminently likable, whether she's doing comedies or dramas. And just on a sort of divergent notes, um, I think she was like the only remotely worthwhile thing from Cimarron. So she even manages to save other wise, worthless projects like Cimarron. And here, this is one of her most iconic roles for a reason. Like, she's just such a gifted comedian and is able to play off of Cary Grant so well like all the films all I think they made three films together and they all do a good job of representing their chemistry and this film in particular she has a certain opinion of herself but is willing to go to certain lengths that other actresses might not have been just to get the right comedic notes in this performance and her banter with Cary Grant and just looking at her dog it's just a lot of fun and then there's Jean Arthur who really has to has a difficult balancing act to accomplish 
in history is made at night because she has to inject some comedy into the role and drama and be a great romantic lead and show panic and distress when she is on a sinking ship or she has to be rescued, I think, from some other guy. And it is such a multifaceted role that she is brilliant in every aspect in the role. And she is one of the great actresses, arguably, of all time. And I feel like more people should be talking about her. Just for her sheer range and versatility. And how natural she is. And then there's Bela Bondi for Make Way for Tomorrow. And she is just so good at just seeming natural and wholesome. And yet, there's such a complexity and history with Ma Cooper that Bondi imbues. It's honestly one of the most heartbreaking performances I've seen in cinema. There's years of history, experience, world weariness, tenderness, and kindness. And then with Janet Gaynor, she does a great job starting out as an innocent, aspiring actress and named Esther Blodgett. I think that's how you say it naive to the way Hollywood works, to becoming Vicky Lester, to struggling in her relationship with Mormon, to ending the film on a jaded note, but becoming hopeful again. And then Barbara Stanwyck in Stella Dallas is heartbreaking. You can see a mother that is imperfect, but does everything in her power to try and care for her daughter. I feel like Stanwyck almost tones down her usual toughness per se, and her usual identifiable mannerisms and persona to create something so nuanced and complicated yet inherently sympathetic. It's just a great performance from her. And you can definitely see how this was a turning point in her career. Yeah, definitely. It's women like Irene Dunn and Janet Gaynor, which I feel really hard, difficult in leaving out because they're just so excellent. I mean, you can't have the awful truth be as great as it is without Irene Dunn. She's just so wonderful and it really not finding a space for her was just so difficult to do. And even Janet Gaynor, who, while I mean, she's while she's my second favorite when it comes to the leading women of Stars Born films, it doesn't diminish her great work and why it doesn't diminish why she was such a great star of the time. Um, she it's just another wonderful example of her greatness. And I'm so happy that she was able to get this nomination 10 years after she became the first winner of the category while delivering great work after just never getting her moment again until this film is just so weird to me.
Yeah, definitely. I just like how she uses her eyes. And just... She just has a great expressive face. That she uses so effectively. And... I especially admire how she was able to transition from silent to sound work. And you can see how well suited she is for both. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even um, just the, I find the humorous notes especially are great, especially when she's working at that party doing the impressions of these great cinematic stars it's just so rare to see an actor at the time being afforded the opportunity to do such a thing and it shows how effectively she was able to transition from silent movies where it was a lot focused on your physicality to also deliver with her speaking as well and then just to mention in terms of other women that I wish I had the space to look for in this category. I mean, you said yourself, the two leading women of uh, Stage Door, just as great as anyone else here, Marlena Dietrich in Angel, um, Jean Arthur in Easy Living, Greta Garbo and Camille, I mean, the list goes on. It's, it's, I don't, we don't talk about enough when it comes to 1937, whether it's the women who weren't nominated or even the women who were nominated. It was such a good list. And I, I hope that if people could check out more of 1937, they'd see there are so many great performances delivered by women this year. Yeah. And, that makes it especially laughable who won that year, but we'll get to that later after we've announced our winners. Absolutely, definitely. <laughs> so next is Best Actor. Yes, yeah, so for uh, Best Actor, the five men who would go for would be Charles Boyer in History is Made at Night, Cary Grant in The Awful Truth, Leslie Howard in It's Love After All, Frederick March in A Star is Born, and Victor Moore in Make Way for Tomorrow. And so there's obviously some overlap in terms of films in all four of my acting categories. And Charles Boyer is just as effective as Gene Arthur and he shows why he was such a great romantic leading man at the time. He just has this presence in this film as any other film where you're so drawn to him and you really understand why his female leads are so drawn to him. He just has this special quality that I struggle to put into words sometime where even if there's a favorite actress of mine acting opposite him, he just pulls me in and I even though I don't want to be pulled in he just has this quality that he uses to the most fullest of effects in history is made at night which is why I wish um, that had been the film that he'd been nominated for and not his um, laughable to say the least performance as um, 
Napoleon in a conquest. Um, and then moving on to Cary Grant, this, this film started for me, the trio of comedic leading man turns by Cary Grant that I so um, much admire. And it's just, there's a reason why I find him most effective when he's in comedies is he's just so unafraid to act a fool. Um, and his chemistry with Irene Dunn, which would later go on to films like Paris, uh, Penny Serenade or Mis Mr. Balding's um, Makes a Home, I think is the name of the film, or maybe that's a different. I think it's called Mr. Blanding's. Sorry, yes, Mr. Blanding's. And um, he just proves why him and Irene Dunn are so good together. And he's just so wonderful in this. And sometimes I struggle in wanting to reward him for every single performance because I find it such a fruitful period for him. But the awful truth, it must be said, is up there with the great turns by him. And um, moving on to Frederick March and A Star Is Born, he really makes a great impression um, in terms of actors playing Norman Maine from the very beginning. March is quickly becoming a favorite of mine at this time with each new film that I see from him. He just has his own unique energy that in every movie he does is so him, but also so different from every film he does. And as Norman Maine, he just is har harrowing to watch. He both breaks your heart, he also annoys you to death, but he's really showing the complexities of the main character in the star is born vehicle and how you care for him but also you care for him not to be there but march just does it so well that of the i mean he is the only one of these five that made the oscar lineup that i wish that this had been his second academy award and um, because he's just so wonderful in a star is born uh, victor moore i feel is probably the more underrated when it comes to the actors from Make Way for Tomorrow, simply because he's not afforded the emotion opportunities that his co-stars are for me. But he, he really stands strong at the center of the film and you can't have um, any of the other characters' journeys be as effective as if without his presence in the movie. And I feel that I want to praise him to the high heavens because his work can sometimes be underrated simply because he's not as emotionally expressive as his other co-stars tend to be. And then the final one rounding out this list is Leslie Howard in It's Love, it's Love I'm After. Uh, Howard is an actor who I used to have a very complicated relationship with, I think mainly due to, to my main point of reference being his Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind, which while Gone with the Wind is a film I enjoy sections of, never have I enjoyed his Ashley. It's such a horrid performance and it's really shocking that only two years later from his great work in It's Love I'm After would he deliver such a bad performance. But in mainly focusing on It's Love I'm After, it's just a great example of his star persona put to the most to the best of uses. And while this is probably 
the, the least seen of these five films in the actor, it definitely doesn't diminish his greatness in the movie. He, he really is the reason to watch, but he's such a good reason to watch that I hope people get to check it out if they are Howard fans, especially. I definitely agree with those choices. With Charles Poirier, I feel like, from what I've seen him in, I feel like he's often let down by characters who aren't that interesting. Often, I feel like the leading ladies tend to overshadow him. And with Conquest, the best I can say for him in that performance is he tried. And the movie's just bad all around. <laughs> and But he is really good in history is made at night. And I feel like that character gives him more of an opportunity to show off what kind of a leading man he is and why someone would be seduced by him. And he and Jean Arthur are lovely together. They're just such a great pairing in the movie. And then, yeah, Leslie Howard is definitely sort of a unique star. I guess I liked him in everything I've seen him in, especially enough to nominate him for uh, Of Human Bondage a few episodes back. So I can't complain with the Leslie Howard nomination. So, my nominees are Cary Grant in The Awful Truce, Ronald Coleman in Lost Horizon, Robert Montgomery in Night Must Fall, Victor Moore in Make Way for Tomorrow, and Frederick March for A Star is Born. Because Frederick March, it, Norman Maine is one of his best creations. Like all the other iterations of Norman, he's broken, he's a drunken mess, even before he meets Vicky or Esther. But you really see him as, but you really see him fall as Vicky rises. And though Norman's fall is largely caused by himself, March allows you to understand and sympathize. And you can see his appeal to Esther or Vicky. And... He is just so charming while also being... It would be easy for this character to be painted as just, oh, he's so wrong for her. Like, why is she going into this? But... March makes him such a charming character. And tragic as well. Like, there is a much-needed sympathetic element to this character. Who might otherwise just be unlikable despite all the help that he gives to Esther and then with Cary Grant like you said what made him so effective in comedy is that he wasn't afraid to appear a fool he wasn't afraid to get into crap balls he was willing to just go there in his comedies and he has this great rubbery face for 
he just seems like he is just enjoying himself the most when he is in comedies. And he makes all these goofy expressions that are just so just charming and funny. And I think an issue I've had with him in dramas is that he never seems like he's t- taking the material seriously enough. Like, with that constant grin on his face, like I said, he just doesn't seem like he's taking drama seriously enough, which puts him at odds with the dramas he's made. And I actually found myself laughing during watching None But The Lonely Heart. There were so many unintentionally hilarious moments during that movie. And this... The Awful Truth is a much better use of his talents. And, yeah, it's one of his most iconic roles, and it played a big role in his own career, I would argue. It was just an endless string of great comedy roles. And then there's Ronald Coleman, who's just, just a great, dashing leading man. He's just this great voice, this great look, that mustache... He's just gorgeous and charming and charismatic. And he's also really good at playing this character who is struggling with his memory and almost a fish out of water in Shangri-La and just reacting to all these larger-than-life elements that are thrown at him. And then there's Robert Montgomery, or... Even if the poem is not subtle, he is really fun and menacing as Danny. And then Victor Moore, like you said, may have more of an understated role, but he is both charming and compelling, playing this more gruff character. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ronald Coleman is definitely a performer that I'm very much a fan of. Um, I can't say that his work in Lost Horizon stands out to me above his great career works, but I'm not going to uh, besmirch someone the chance to nominate Ronald Coleman because he really was and is one of the great film actors of all time. And Robert Montgomery is definitely a very great element of Night Must Fall. It's, it's really him and Mae Whitty that's, that makes the film work. And that's saying a lot because Ros- Rosalind Russell is there just, I guess, being there. She's, she's not afforded any great opportunities to perform to the best of her abilities that she would later go on to do or even do the year before in something like uh, Craig's Wife. So I think that the five men that you've chosen are great examples of leading male turns and definitely make for a more exciting list than that chosen of the Academy. I mean, even as you yourself said, um, Boyer in um, Conquest is such a waste of a space 
and I, I hate saying that because I really do enjoy Boye in a lot of things. To say his inclusion in any list is a waste of space really, for me, shows how ineffective his work is. Um, and I guess in response to the Cary Grantness, I do agree that sometimes it feels like he's sleepwalking in his dramatic roles in something like None But the Lonely Heart. Um, so I, I feel like he's he's really dipping into his um Alfredness, his his true self in his comedic turns, his his for lack of a better word, his gay self, his happy self in his comedic turns. I feel like he's really tapping into himself when he delivers these wonderful performances. And while I do enjoy some of his dramatic works more so in his Hitchcock collaborations. Um, I do think that he really shines in comedies of this era, but also even of a decade later in something like The Bachelor and The Bobby Soxer. He's just so wonderfully charming in comedic roles that I can't really envision him in any other film genre because it's it's not going to be as effective as he is in comedic roles. Definitely. I will say that I think Grant is really effective in like the last 30 minutes or so of uh, Penny's serenade or he shows his character's depression and I think that is just really great understated work. My only issue is with the ending which is just such a cop out from what the movie was doing before that it really kind of soured me on the movie. But I think he does a good job in that movie. So next is Best Director. Yeah, so for me, my five choices uh, for Best Director would be Frank Borzage for Histories Made at Night. Ernst Lubitsch for Angel, Leo McCary for The Awful Truth, also Leo McCary for Make Way for Tomorrow, and William A. Wellman for A Star is Born. Uh, similar to what I said about these films before, The Awful Truth is comedic perfection, Make Way for Tomorrow is overall film perfection, A Star is Born is filming films about making a film's perfection. Angel is, while an underrated Lubitsch, an equally as effective Lubitsch as his career ever was. And History is Made at Night is one of the great underrated romance pictures of any period of filmmaking. I absolutely agree with all those choices. They are all great representations of what their directors are capable of doing. So, my nominees are Leo McCary for The Awful Truth, William Wyler for Dead End, Frank Borzage for History's Minute at Night, Leo McCary for Make Way for Tomorrow, and William A. Waldman for A Star is Born. 
So with Leo McCurry for both the Awful Truths and May 3 for tomorrow. With the Awful Truths, he does what any director of a screwball comedy should do. Focus on the actors, cut between them with urgency, and keep the pacing tight. Like, keep things refreshing consistently. And then with Make Way for Tomorrow, his direction is methodical yet involved the whole time. And then with William Wyler for Dead Ends, he does a lot to translate this movie from stage to big screen. Despite the scope, there is a cuss instead of claustrophobia. And then with Frank Borzage, he almost feels like a auteur at this point. Like, few others do this sort of style so well. There's this sort of heaven-like aura around all of his movies that make them so hypnotic and dreamlike. And it's perfect for a movie like this that is so bonkers and out there. And then with William A. Wallman for A Star is Born. His direction makes this movie look gorgeous. All in once, he manages to mind complex human drama and moral ambiguity, as well as deliver a technically stunning feature that breaks new grounds for how movies look. Yeah, those are some great choices as well. The The only difference we have is between Lubitsch and Weiler, and I can see why making you would make the choice for Weiler. I mean, he clearly is one of the great actors, directors of all time. There's a reason why he holds a record for, record for most Academy Award-nominated acting performances that he's directed, and Dead End is no different i mean it's such a strong ensemble whether you have um humphrey bogart as you've mentioned or even a sylvia sydney or even a um who am i thinking or even um claire trevor in i mean she was nominated for an oscar it's such a tiny role but she's just so wonderful in her one scene even marjorie main who would later go on to fame as ma Kent, or sorry, not Ma Kent, um, the character from her Oscar nominator in Egg and I, she's just so wonderful. It's such a strong ensemble, and you would never have such a strong ensemble without the well-directed work of William Wyler. Absolutely. I appreciate how I just appreciate the risks he was willing to take throughout his career and how he was able to coax great performances from each of his actors. And he, I can't think of a more hardworking director than he was just in terms of his sheer commitment to craft and making great products. And I really appreciate what he brought to Hollywood as a director. So next is the big one, Best Picture. Yeah, so when it comes to uh, Best Picture, while I understand there was 10 nominees from 1937, 
um, for myself at least, in narrowing it down, I sometimes would rather it be five. So in terms of my list, the five films that I think were deserving of a Best Picture nomination uh, would be The Awful Truth, Make Way for Tomorrow, A Star is Born, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and Stage Door. Um, in speaking of them individually, The Awful Truth is easily one of the great screwball comedies. Um, Make Way for Tomorrow is just, it's just so wonderful and so underrated. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs being Disney's first full-length animated film is so great. There's a reason why we watch it constantly. Stage Door is just such a well-rounded ensemble piece with wonderful performances. And A Star is Born is just a great example of Hollywood filmmaking. Agreed with all that. Like, all five of these films are fantastic on some level or another. So, my nominees are I Went With Ten, like the Academy, The Awful Truth, Captain's Courageous, Dead End, History is Made at Night, Make Way for Tomorrow, The Prisoner of Zenda, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Stage Door, A Star is Born, and Stella Dallas. The Awful Truth is another one of those great screwball comedies where the humor comes from the central couple going to great lengths to humiliate each other only to realize they're not really getting what they want and at the end of the day they need to sort things out individually and as a team. All the little quirks add up to complement the bigger picture, and the noble big set pieces are used for great laughs, and all the actors are just committed to this material, and just the comedy. And that and that is what makes any good comedy work, just commitment. And Captain's Courageous, I really enjoyed the adventure this movie took me on. It's just simply fun and rousing, and... It also says something about cultural clashes, which I appreciated. And then that end, I think this is a convincing, if loosely structured portrait of a gap between the rich and the poor, as well as how growing up poor can really affect your way of living and thinking. And then history is made at night. It's just a wild ride that is so off the rockers, bonkers, and Frank Borzage and his most pointedly inspired. It goes from romantic comedy to romantic drama and then action to extravaganza. Yet feels like one singular piece the whole time, which is incredible. And then Make Way for Tomorrow. One of the most heartbreaking movies I've seen ever. It earns all its emotional beats. It's moving in all the right ways. And in the way that all best Holly old Hollywood movies are. The pacing takes its time and no plot point is missed. And there's a great sense of romanticism to the proceedings. And then The Prisoner of Zenda is just another fun swashbuckling adventure movie that 
has such an agreeable down the line appeal and effort in its production, and it's hard to resist. And then Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Walt Disney changed the film medium forever. Basically created the concept of animated film and displayed the many achievements that could be accomplished. It's such a simple story on the surface, but accomplishes this so much. There is such attention to detail and the colors and the design. The designs, uh, it just looks amazing. <laughs> and it's just a great film overall. And it deserves its status and legacy. And then Stage Door. A key, the key to this movie's success is that it subverts its stage roots to become a great ensemble piece, letting the actors bounce off each other marvelously and using clever camera angles and dialogue. Stars Born is a beautiful first-ish iteration of the story, if you count what price Hollywood. But nonetheless, it benefits from a lot from being the original telling and you get an almost startling viewpoint of how cruel the studio system is, how it will set people up and knock them down, as well as certain people rising and others falling. But at the same time, it's one of those places where you want to be there regardless, just to get a taste of that high life. And then Stella Dallas is stunning as an early woman's picture, and King Vidor once again has a unique perspective on the human experience. And it's why he was such a compelling outsore. Yeah, that that that's a very represented list of all of many great films from nineteen thirty seven. I mean, if I were to expand my list to ten, I think the films I would definitely want to include, similar to yourself, uh, history is made at night, and the prisoner of Zenda would definitely make my top ten. Uh, were, I, were I to consider 10 nominees for picture. But as you mentioned there, there's just some wonderful films from 1937 that stand out and really should be discussed more years later. Absolutely. So when we get back, we will announce our winners. <laughs> I think my brother's pretty swell, don't you? Oh, yeah. He's always been pretty swell to me. I was working my head off at the Virginia Club, but the minute he started doing better, um, you know what I mean? Why, well, he made me give up my job and um, take a trip to London and Paris, and uh, I think that was pretty swell, don't you? What did you do at the Virginia Club? Well, well I see, did. I'll Barbara. tell her. It was a little act, a uh, kind of... Um, well, it's a little hard to explain. Have you got any records? Records? Oh, oh yes, yes, we have some records. Well, maybe if we... Say, wait a minute. Don't anybody leave this room. I've lost my purse. And now we're back. So now it is time to announce our winners. Uh, yeah, so uh, my choice for special effects would be uh, the hurricane or yeah the hurricane uh, effects done by James Bezavi, Oro Binger and Orti Layton. So the the hurricane is a film 
um, which I think the reason for my choosing it as the best special effects is mainly due to the, as the title suggests, hurricane sequence. It's just, it's a lot of effects happening and it's just the best sequence of the movie. And I think that's why I chose it as the best effects for the year of 1937. That's a good choice. So my winner is Lost Horizon. I feel like it has the most to show for its special effects of these nominees. Like, if you, I feel like the effects are most integral to the movie of my list of nominees. So that is why I choose Lost Horizon as my winner. So next is Best Film Editing. Uh, for Best Film Editing, I have to go with Al Clark for The Awful Truth. Um, it's just a great example of comedic editing where situations happen and it leads to such great humor and it can be difficult to make a really balanced screwball comedy, but through Clark's editing and their work with every other member of the cast and crew, it's just such a perfect example of great comedic editing. And it was the only choice I could make in this category, even with some very worthy nominees. Absolutely. My choice is History is Made at Night. Simply for the way it melts all these individual elements together. The various set pieces. The various juggling of various genres. And just feelings very cohesive for the type of wild movie that it is and i ultimately feel like this feels like the most difficult job of the five nominees at least in my opinion so next is best makeup uh, for best makeup i have to go with Kirk Westmore for, Westmore for Fire Over England and um, his work of creating Laura Robson's Queen of Queen Elizabeth of England look is just very fascinating to watch and very singular and um, having seen a lot of attempts to recreate the look of Queen Elizabeth while not maybe the most historically accurate version it really stands out filmically, uh, filmically, filmically, I can't say that word, it really stands out cinematically, and that's why I couldn't help but award it the Best Makeup Prize. Agreed, those are all good points. My winner is Fire Over England. 
like you said, the creation of Queen Elizabeth one of England. That is just such a striking look that I had to give it to that film. I did consider The Life of Emile Zola, which undoubtedly would have won had that category been around 37. But maybe it's just because the movie itself just, just felt mad for me. And I had slightly more enjoyment with Fire Over England. But nonetheless, Fire Over England is my choice. So next is Best Original Score. Uh, for Best Original Score, I have to go with Frank Churchill, Lee Harlan, and Paul Smith for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, there's a reason why we all remember Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, for its music, it's just really iconic, and the work of these three collaborators together has really stuck with me for 20 plus years now since I originally saw the movie when I was much younger. So that's why it's my choice for the best original score of 1937. Yeah, so it's definitely a worthy choice. Like that score is iconic. I ultimately won with The Prisoner of Zenda by Alfred Newman. I feel like this is one of his highest accomplishments, and it's just a great complimentary addition to the film overall. Like I said, Alfred Newman seemed to understand this sort of subgenre really well with the Mark of Zorro and the Black Swan, and he was just such a great composer all around. So I'm going with. Alfred Newman for The Prisoner of Zenda. Next is Best Sound Recording. Uh, my choice for Best Sound Recording is Douglas Shear for A Day at the Races. Um, like many marks for those movies, there's many different comedic situations being performed and the sound is a very important part to this feature, especially, and Shearer's work is just really wonderful to behold, whether it's the proper um, levels when it comes to the musical numbers or even just the racing scenes where you believably believe you are, sorry, where you believe that you are at a day at the races, as the title suggests, is just great work by Shearer. Yeah, it certainly is a worthy choice. I ultimately went with Dead End. Sound recording by Thomas T. Moulton. I feel like this is just a great use of a specific location. Besides the gunshots, there's just this echoing quality that... makes it so eerie and stressful and anxiety inducing to be in this area 
So next is best costume design. Uh, so for best costume design, I have to go with Adrian for Camille. The costuming in Camille is just so beautiful to look at. And there's a reason why Adrian was and continues to be one of the greatest costume designers ever to work in the film industry. His work is just so wonderful. And Camille is just another example of why he was so well awarded during his time. Agreed. And my winner is also Adrian for Camille. His gowns just look stunning. And it just looks amazing, everything he does. Like, so many of his works are iconic for a reason. And I'm glad we get to be going back in time to retroactively reward him when the Academy should have been rewarding him many times over. So next is Best Art Direction. For Art Direction, my choice is Hans Dreyer and Robert Usher for Angel. Uh, Angel is just a beautiful film and its sets are magnificent to behold. And that's mainly why I have to go with it for our direction. Worthy choice, a very good choice. My winner is Dead End. I just like the look of the city. And just how roach infested and rat infested the, the lower areas are. How even the higher up affluent places don't look all that appealing. It just seems like a very dark place to be in, but also a place where a community can find some common interests in. And it's just such a well-rounded piece of production design that I had to go with it. This was Richard Day and he knows what he's doing. So next is Best Cinematography. My choice for cinematography is W. Howard Green for Nothing Sacred. At a time where technical or filmmaking was still in development, it's definitely worth noting how beautiful the photography of Nothing Sacred is, whether it's the capturing of all the different locations or simply just Carol Lombard the film's lead. It's wonderful photography and as an early example of great technicolor filmmaking, it's worthy of a cinematography win here. Absolutely. Like W. Howard Green really knew how to make technical work to make the movie look just stunning. I know I'm using a lot of the same term, but a lot of his technical movies just looked exquisite. And the colors really popped. So my winner is Captain's Courageous. I think I just like the look of the 
sea and the dark skies and how it made the whole surroundings look and it's just a really great looking adventure So next is Best Original Song. For Best Original Song, my choice is Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, it's a song that you could easily sing along with. It's catchy. It's well ingrained in the story of the film. It's part of the story of the film itself. It's, very, it's performed very early on through humming. And then later on through storytelling, it's just a great example of how well ingrained original song can be in the story of a film. Definitely. And my winner is the same. Someday my prince will come from Snow White and Seven Dwarfs is also my winner. That song is iconic and ingrained within the film and popular culture so well. So next is Best Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, my choice for Best Screenplay is Vin Del Mar for Make Way for Tomorrow. And it's just, you don't get as great a movie as Make Way for Tomorrow unless you have a great screenplay at its origination. Definitely. And... My winner is also Make Way for Tomorrow for the same reason. It's just a great foundation for this movie. So next is Best Original Screenplay. My choice for Best Original Screenplay is A Star is Born, written by William A. Wellman, Robert Carson, Dorothy Parker, and Alan Campbell. There's a reason A Star is Born is made has been remade three times since. It's just such a wonderful story to tell. And this first telling is just so wonderful with sharp dialogue, uh, great written situations, great characters in Norman and Esther and even side characters such as Grandma Letty. It's just such a wonderful original screenplay and it's no wonder that um, it was chosen as the screenplay winner this year, as it was so deserving of such a win. Definitely. And my winner is also A Star Is Born. For the same reason, like, this story is so timeless. You can put it in any setting and it would work. And this movie, I'd argue, benefits from being the original telling. So next is Best Supporting Actress. My choice for Best Supporting Actress is Faye Bainter for Make Way for Tomorrow. Um, I really struggle sometimes to pick anybody else but Faye Bainter, as she's just the quintessential example of a great supporting character actress of this time period especially she has one of the most expressive faces i've ever seen every emotion you can read on her face while she's also 
restricting the emotions she wants you to see. She plays every scene true to her character, even if that means being slightly unlikable in certain scenes. It's such a wonderful performance to behold. And had this performance possibly happened two years later, she probably would have got a nomination for this due to her success the following year as being the first person to be nominated in two acting categories in the same year. Yeah, she was, I think she's excellent in both of the roles she was nominated for in 38s. White Banners, I feel, is especially underrated for her. And I kind of wish that she had been offered more leading roles like White Banners. Faye Bainter was just definitely one of those great character actresses who just brought so much to these roles that could have been thrown away. There was just a richness to her acting style. So my winner is Andrea Leeds for Stage Door. I think with Andrea Leeds, she almost feels, like I said, like the heart and soul of this movie. There is this tragic element to her character, and Leeds plays it knowingly, but also sincerely in a certain way that just works. So next is Best Supporting Actor. For Supporting Actor, I have to go with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. for The Prisoner of Zenda. He plays the most wonderfully fun of villains. And while Fairbanks Jr. isn't necessarily a favorite actor of mine, it's hard for me to deny that on this outing, at least he was wonderful and deserving of recognition for his work. Yes, definitely. My winner is Thomas Mitchell for Make Way for Tomorrow. There's just this wonderful earthy quality he brings to George. And Thomas Mitchell was another one of those really great character actors who don't who don't get talked about nowadays, but He just brought something to every role he was in. Even if a role wasn't the greatest, like in something like The Hurricane. So next is Best Actress. For Best Actress, um, my choice is Balula Bandi for Make Way for Tomorrow. It's a performance of great subtlety, great heartbreak, and just great opportunity. I mean, it's rare for an actor of Bondi's standing to be given a leading role such as this. And she shows that had she be given more throughout her career, she would have easily been one of the great leading actors as well as one of the great character actresses. She's stellar throughout. She's just wonderful. And I'm so glad that I finally got the opportunity to watch Make Way for Tomorrow because had I not seen it, I would have missed out on such a great performance as Balula Bondi's. Definitely. 
it is such a brilliant role for any actress to take on, but Viola has a special quality to her that makes her just right for this role. So my winner is Irene Dunn for The Awful Truth. I think it's just one of those perfect comedy performances. And she's just so charming and lovable and brings a lot of zest and fire. And her banter with Cary Grant is just pitch perfect. And yeah, I love this performance from her. So next is Best Actor. For Best Actor, um, I'm going with Cary Grant for The Awful Truth. It's a wonderful comedic turn. It showed it showed it, it showed such promise that when he would go into comedic turns immediately after, it was an equally as great as performance. And there was no other choice I can make this year when it comes to leading actor. So Cary Grant for The Awful Truth is my choice here. And my winner is also the same, Cary Grant for The Awful Truth. And this is just, he understood the genre and what is usually needed of the genre. Just full commitment to all the craziness that, and being willing to put yourself through a lot of things. And he's just charming and lovable and charismatic and just dashing and suave and goofy. And he's great. And this might be my favorite performance of his. So next is Best Director. Uh, for Best Director, I'm going with Leo McCary for Make Way for Tomorrow. It's unquestionably a great film. And I had no other choice but Leo McCary. And by that, I mean it was either going to be his work on The Awful Truth or Make Way for Tomorrow. But as it goes, I lean more towards Make Way for Tomorrow as his best film of 1937. And my winner is also the same. Leo McCurry for Make Way for Tomorrow. I feel like this is his best film. And we'll get into more about what he said specifically. But it's basically him agreeing with us. But yes, it's just a wonderful film and a great example of what he was capable of doing. And it's just one of the great tear jerkers of all time. So next is Best Picture. And no shocker, but my choice for Best Picture is Make Way for Tomorrow. And I feel like I've stretched all I can say about Make Way for Tomorrow other than that it is a brilliant movie that thankfully is believed to be a brilliant movie by many people, not just myself included, which is why making this choice was very easy to make. It's just such a wonderful movie and I hope 
that anyone who hasn't seen it is encouraged to watch the film as you won't regret it, I promise. Definitely. Uh, Make Way for Tomorrow is also my winner. It's just one of the great movies of the 30s, one of the greatest tear-jerkers of all time. It doesn't feel manipulative. Like that final scene is just a gut punch and it works so well because it's not played in an overwrought fashion. And you can see why directors like Peter Bogdanovich would be influenced by it later on. So yeah, make way for tomorrow. The best movie of 1937. At least according to us and a bunch of other people. Absolutely. So, do you want to talk about some of the actual Oscar winners from this year? Yeah, there are definitely some... You go ahead. There are definitely some interesting choices that were made, I can say. Yeah, considerably less impressive, though. Um, so, the actual Best Picture winner this year was The Life of Emile Zola. Which, not surprising, you know, it is a, a big prestige biopic, and about a great important person, and, you know, it's right up the Academy's alley. It shouldn't be that surprising why it won. But it doesn't really hold up very well. It's perfectly okay, I guess, but I don't know. It's just it's just kind of there. there yeah. It doesn't really stand out in any particular way. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not the worst film that I've seen to win the award, um, but it's certainly not an exciting choice that the, the most exciting choice they could have made it's very by the numbers very unimaginative and other than the work of joseph schleningkraut it's a film that in no way sticks with me even a year out from having watched it even the title is uninspired. Like, could you get less inspired than The Life of Emile Zola? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not even... The title is also slightly misleading in how basic of a title it is. It's very... I mean, I'm grateful that it's very focused on mainly one moment in Zola's life, but it's... I don't know. It's, it's really... It's an example of why I'm not a fan of the Palm Muni uh, filmography as most of them, most of the films that I associate with him are very important man films and they just decades later do not hold the same amount of standing as they once did during their time. I think he's at his best when he is doing something 
he's taking more risks, like something like Scarface or I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. I feel like those did more for him on a challenging level than any of his great man biopic performances really did. And it's certainly not a great representation of director William D. Troll's career either. He certainly had more exciting movies that he could have he could have received a nomination for. And this just feels like a lazy choice, frankly. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's definitely an example why I prefer Paul Muni in a pre-code era where he was making films like Scarface, the, Scarface then a post-code area where he's making films like this and it, the film which he won his Academy Award for, the story of Louis Pasteur, where it's very by the numbers and just not exciting filmmaking that even me trying to envision myself at the time watching just does not feel as fresh as other films in contention this year. Yeah. So, how do we feel about um, the best actor winner from this year, Spencer Tracy and Captain's Courageous? I've said my thoughts on him, but what did you think? I mean, it's I I personally do not understand um a lot of Tracy's appeal. Uh, he certainly I think I would rank him third at best of this lineup. But I I have no real strong feelings either way towards his work. Um in this film especially. So I guess I can't get too upset or mad about his win, seeing as the person who I would have voted for had already won and then would go on to win a second uh, nine years later. So it's not a major crime, but I don't know. I just, I have no real passion when it comes to Tracy in films. I don't know. I feel like there could have been a more interesting version of Tracy, but the Hollywood machine just decided to put him in a lot of the same kind of uh, kinds of roles, and I'm thinking of something like Boys Town, which he's kind of playing a blank slate of a character, or Father Flanagan is just this this perfect all around just good old guy, just teaching the boys how to be good and. It's really silly, and it's definitely a relic of its time, Boys Town. And I do like him here because he is charming and likable and touching. But yeah, I can definitely see the criticisms with Tracy. That said, how do we feel about the actual Best Actress winner this year? Um, I mean, it's 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 not a great win. Um, I can comfortably say that. Uh, Louise Rayner is definitely a name in film history. She's not. She obviously, by choice, did not become the 
a big star of film and this win when you look back at it makes some sort of sense in how she was being built up to be the next great star but also at the same time it's really not a performance that I feel comfortable discussing simply because of the clear um casting problem of the film but also the role itself is not the greatest of roles it's a very as presented submissive role and very secondary role in its inclusion in the film the gooder so in comparison to everybody else in the lineup it's for me the clear outlier in how weak of a performance it is that it being the winner just does not sit right with me at all. Yeah, it's it's really problematic for obvious reasons. And when you consider like the backstory of how Anime Wong was supposed to was wanted this role, but the Hayes Code at the time prohibited uh interracial relationships even presented on screen like even like portrayed by actors of different races it's really upsetting and the performance itself is not great i guess i don't want to go too in depth about it but it i would describe it as wooden just to keep it short and it's really just saddening to think about. And I feel like Louise Reiner did not get the treatment in Hollywood that she deserved. And I'm glad for her that she managed to escape from what must have been a really stressful environment and chose to do something different. So, regarding Leo McCary, he said when he accepted his award for The Awful Truth, he said, thanks, but you gave it to me for the wrong picture. And I just like how he's just so upfront about that, how he wanted to be rewarded for his other movie. So what do you think of that? I mean, I, I agree that Make Way for Tomorrow is the better film, but I'm at least happy to see McCary's name be listed as the best director winner for The Awful Truth, which is also a great film. So while Make Way for Tomorrow for me is the better of the two films, I'm at least happy that he won and it didn't end up being someone like a, a William Dietro for Emile Zola or Sidney Franklin for Good Earth. Yeah. At least at least he ended up winning a prize this year, even if it was for more so the wrong film. Yeah. So it's now time to answer questions from the audience. Fritz and the Oscars basically asked something along the lines of what we already discussed. Leo McCary thought you won for the wrong movie. Do you agree? I think we both agree. Yeah, I mean, 
if if you want yeah he did he did win for the wrong film but at least he won for a good film yeah absolutely emily blakowski asked why do you think the category best dance direction was cut after this ceremony i mean i'm not entirely sure but as a a musical film fan I wish the category had continued to exist because I'm very much a fan of dance in film. But I don't I don't really have an explanation why it was suddenly cut. Um, I'm not sure how to feel about that. Like it definitely makes sense for that in time because musicals were a lot more popular that time. I mean, in that time but who knows? So Ben Miller asked, why do you think Hepburn and Rogers weren't included in the actual Oscars list? Um, I mean, at least when it comes to Hepburn, I think this was very much on the edge of what would become her uh, titled box office poison part of her career. I mean, I think it was two months later after the ceremony that the list of box office poison stars came out and she was on that list. So I think maybe that explains why she wasn't nominated. Um, and then Rogers, I guess, the thought might have been that she was still so linked to Fred Astaire and that um, she hadn't gotten her leading moment to be nominated so I think those might be reasons why they weren't nominated but I guess also maybe the academy struggled in who to choose from stage door to spotlight I even sometimes wonder how they came to Andrea Leeds as the choice to want to nominate from the film when there are so many great performances from the film I guess th those could be reasons why neither of the so-called so-called leads were nominated for a stage door yeah i definitely agree with those points i wonder if ginger rogers were not taken seriously enough at that point as a so-called serious dramatic actress quote unquote and it only took her like three years later to win an oscar for kitty foyle which was certainly a choice and then Catherine Hepburn, yeah, like you said, this was a time when she was really a toxic presence in Hollywood. And people just wanted to keep cutting her down. And I just find that really unfair. So, do you have any final thoughts on this year, Owen? Um, in terms of final thoughts... I was very happy to discuss a lot of 1937 films. It's like, it's a very underrated film year. And even prior to my deep dive into the year last summer, it was a year that I was not fully familiar with. I'd only seen Snow White, The Awful Truth and Stage Door prior to my deep dive. So I was definitely happy to complete to the most part um, my view, my film watching for a given year. Um, 
yeah, no, it was a very good year. A lot of great films, a, very, a lot of great different films that could have been nominated had um, I had my way of nominating for the Oscars, dissimilar from the actual choices made by the Academy. Absolutely. So I agree about a lot of that. And I just think this was a great year, like you said. And as usual, the Academy didn't exactly do a great job of representing that. And certainly a lot of choices that could have only been made in that time period. And they wouldn't get away with nowadays. Or maybe they would have. Who knows? So, yeah. Um, Owen, thank you for agreeing to come back to appear on this podcast. I really had a fun time talking with you about this year. No problem. Thank, thank you for having me back. It was definitely uh, interesting in seeing how aligned, but also not aligned, our choices were for great films of the year. It shows that um, the great films really stand out in a lot of aspects. Definitely. So how can we find you on social media? Yes, yeah, so in terms of social media, um, you can find me on Twitter at OwnDaily, that's E-O-I-N-D-A-I-L-Y. And I post a lot of thoughts in terms of film there. Um, you can also find me on Letterboxd at my name, Own Daily, And you can also find on Letterboxd lists of years where I've done deep dives into, including 1937, where I list my a full list of nominees for what I would have chosen from the films eligible that I've seen that year. Um, yes, yeah, so those are the places you can find me. Awesome. I'm doing sort of similar thing myself for purposes related to this podcast. So you can find me on Twitter at Gabe the Joker with two underscores. You can find me on Letterboxd at Mr. Hulo. You can find me on Instagram at Gabe underscore Warren. You can find the Alternate Oscars Twitter page at Alternate Oscars. Be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake. And until next time, sit back, relax, cheers, enjoy, and thank you for listening to the Alternate Oscars. You see, the house isn't ours anymore. The bank is taking it over. The only thing I can suggest is that you come to live with one of us until we can get ourselves straightened out. Well, that's awfully nice of you, George, but your father and I thought that, well, no matter what happened, that we'd always be... Oh, never mind what we thought.